Welcome to the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. It's your host, Robert Hunt. Where I look at the week's financial news, that can be a bit confusing, misleading, and take you off course, and I make it actionable, understandable, and clear. Got a great one for you this week. We're looking at a Wall Street Journal article by one of our favorites, Jason Zwig. We should just have a Jason Zwig corner because I like just about every article he writes. Headline, Why Investors Are Piling Into Funds That Promise Not to Beat the Stock Market. Oh, that's a headline grabber. We're then going to look at some fun Twitter data. So we got some uh, great information uh, on why it is that the average investor seems to do poorly. Look at 20-year data. And then what happens to the S&P 500 after an initial 20% decline? So... We'll just see maybe what we have in store for us. And then to close, we're going to look at a CNBC article on the rise of zombie venture capital funds. They haunt investors as plunging valuations hammer the industry. So let's get it started at the top. Wall Street Journal, Jason's Wig this week. Why investors are piling into funds that promise not to be the stock market. So who would do that? Subheadline after great returns last year, covered call funds are all the rage among income-oriented investors, but their high yields aren't a free lunch. So good. So Zwig cast the vision for us on why it is investors like this stuff. He says, finally, you can earn income of 4% or more on cash and bonds, but what if you could earn monthly dividends on stocks at an annual rate of at least 11%? That's the pitch for exchange-traded funds that are generating these eye-popping yields by selling options contracts. These ETFs are known as covered call or option income funds, but they're not magic, he says. And I agree. But let's look at let's look at the good and get into a little bit of the mechanics on how these things work. So some of this is going to be new information. And we try here at the RHF market update not to get complicated, but we're going to do a little bit of that just so we can understand this article. And we'll, Zwig does a good job. But here's here's why people like it. So last year, this J.P. Morgan had a product. The J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF lost 3.5%, far outperforming the dismal 18.1% decline in the S&P 500. As technology stocks tanked, the global ex-NASDAQ 100 covered call ETF lost 90%, much less than the 32% dive in the NASDAQ itself. So you see the appeal. Wow. I mean, even if you don't know what the covered calls do or how it works, well, it didn't do as poorly in these down markets. Should I dip my toe here? Well... Zwig rightly says, before you join the pilgrimage, you should learn a bit about how these funds work. So, how do they work? Zwig writes, in a covered call trade, you sell a call option on an asset you hold. That gives the buyer of the option the right to purchase the asset from you at a specified strike price on or before a certain date. So, I'm going to translate that Robert Hunt financial language. Let's say you own a stock and... That stock is currently worth $10 a share. Well, there's an option buyer who wants an option who would buy that stock at $12. They want the option to buy it at $12. Well, it's not $12 yet. So you're selling an option. You're generating a little income for yourself, but you're not giving away the stock yet. You only have to give it away. It only gets called away if that security rises in price above the 12, right? Because the rational counterparty here, the person who bought the option, isn't going to exercise it unless it gets above that 12. So, that's what's happening across a whole portfolio of stocks. So, let's say you own 100 stocks. You're writing these call options to a whole host of these investors. And who are these other people? 
Well, these are called options investors. Oftentimes they're hedging or seeking to, uh, a whole host of reasons why they would want to buy these options. But if they feel the price of the security is low and they want to get exposure to that security, they'll buy an option. So what happens? And you can kind of see this. Well, this is kind of a weird place to be in, but if you have owned that stock at $10 a share and it goes to $14 a share, you're actually sad. Even though you own the stock, why? It's going to get called away. You're no longer going to own it. You, you generate a little bit of income by giving someone the right to purchase the security at that $12. So that's what's happening. So that gives the buyer, as Wig writes, the option to purchase the asset at a strike price on or before a certain date. In exchange, you get that upfront payment called a premium. And that's how these funds will push these payouts. They get these premiums. So if you're writing these, these options for people getting these premiums, these premiums, if the stock market trades flat, it's great. Because you're going to own the securities anyway. You get to hold them. You don't have to do anything with them. And these people are paying you money to have these worthless options exercised. But what if the asset rises above the strike price? Then the buyer of that option can call it away from you. You'll still earn the premium, but you won't own the asset anymore. You'll be frozen out of those future gains. So these covered calls, they call them, they work best if the stock of the asset doesn't go very far in either direction, says Stephen Viglewski. I like that last name, Stephen Viglewski, an emeritus professor of finance at NYU and a former options strategist on Wall Street. If it goes way up, you'll kick yourself for selling the call. If it goes way down, the premium won't cover all your loss in the stock. So what's happening this year? <clears throat> and isn't this the way investing works? 2022 covered call strategies, hey, they really worked, didn't they? You remember the data. What about 2023? In 2023, as stocks have gotten off to a roaring start, these funds are lagging because they are, by design, less than 100% exposed to stocks. This week, with the S&P 500 gaining 8% so far this year, that same J.P. Morgan Equity Premium in Income ETF was just up 1%. Ouch. The global X S&P 500 covered call had gained under 5%. So this trade-off... This is inevitable, the article says. You're not going to capture the upside in an up market. So you're trading that upside away. And this is also why I look suspiciously at this strategy. I think this is a fine strategy uh, for some people, but usually when they explain the reason why they're doing it, I'd say, eh, not a good idea. Much, there are much more efficient ways to do this. If you are that scared about volatility, you're probably, your asset out, something's wrong with your asset allocation. And then... There's, you can also just sell securities. So the article Zwig talks about that. You could generate, Zwig says, a roughly 12% annual yield on your stock portfolio simply by selling 1% of your holdings every month. The proceeds would be taxable at the maximum cap gains rate of 20%. Or you'd reduce your tax bill if you sell your percentage loss. With covered call funds, on the other hand, those dividend distributions are taxed at ordinary rates, up to 40%. Whereas stock dividends are typically taxed at half that. So it's not a tax-efficient way to generate income. So when people say, hey, I want to generate income, I just need cash in my portfolio, I don't want to just sit there with the, well, this is, the IRS loves you. The IRS loves this strategy. It's a wonderful strategy for the tax man. They get more of your money. So I don't think this is a fit for most people. You could try and convince me with some unique circumstance, but in most cases, I'm going to say, nah, I wouldn't do it. <clears throat> but the yields are going to pop on the page, so beware beware. All right, Twitter data, some of my favorite. Two things. First one, this is uh, the source here is S&P Fact Set and NBER. 
I, I thought this was interesting. This is the S&P 500 average returns following an initial 20% decline. And that's basically what we had last year. You guys heard from the last article what it was, 18.1% we were down or so. So let's just call it, let's just call it 20. Why not? Just to keep it simple. Well, what this data shows is that it's actually, performance actually is pretty good regardless of the economic environment. So this, this data set says S&P 500 average returns following an initial 20% decline for recessions and non-recessions. And there's a great deal of debate over whether we're going to enter a recession or not. This week, oh, I'm seeing lots of not recessions, but who knows. Well, what's the data show? It shows that following this 20% decline, the return for S&P 500 after 12 months is 9.3% in a recession, 17% for a non-recession. Well, let's go out to 18 months after this 20% decline. 17.7% return in a recessionary environment, 20% return in a non-recessionary environment. What are we learning, listener? What are you learning? Take captive your thoughts on this thing. What is going on? There's a, so much noise about, are we entering a recession? Are we not in a recession? The story behind the story and what a lot of people say is, oh, should I be in cash? Should I wait? Is this one of these deals where I'll just wait for the indicators to tell me we're not in recession, then I'm all in? Well, what this data set shows is that you do well no matter what, recession or not. The game here is not betting on recession or not. The game here is staying in the market because 12 months after this 20% decline, you're up 9.3% in a recession. You're up 17.7% in a recession over 18 months. And this is over various data sets that the S&P fact set and MBER are finding this for. So what this tells us is it's really not worth our time looking at the tea leaves to decide whether or not we're entering a recession or not. Because yes, of course I see the data. I read that in non-recession it was a little better than recession, but not much. Over that 18-month period, recession was 17.7% return, non-recession 20% return. Is that really something you're going to try to dance in and out of? No. No, no, no. So when you start hearing people talk about the great importance, and it, of course it matters at the company level, and it matters for banks and their reserves. It matters for a lot of things. It doesn't matter for you, the index fund investor. It doesn't matter for you, the investor investor. You need to be in, the, you need to be fully invested. You, you need to not worry or try to time whether it's a recession or not, because either way, what the data shows is you're going to do well to hang in there. Hang in there. And then this is the data set. <clears throat> I know I've, I've revealed it on other um, episodes, but the data keeps refreshing. This is uh, Cosmo DiStefano. He put out the J.P. Morgan data. So J.P. Morgan found that over the 20-year period, 2002 to 2021, the S&P 500 had an annualized return of 9.5%, while the average investor had an annualized return of just 3.6% or 62% less. Now what Cosmo says is how to avoid this performance lag. Develop a plan, get your emotions in check, enjoy the ride. I agree. But I want to go down the list here and then talk about why this is normal and it shouldn't be. So returns by asset class 2002-2021. Now you'll remember I this is all about time frame. So 2002 was a good year to start the clock for S&P 500. The year 2000 would have been a bad year to start the clock. So be wary of these time horizons. Don't, don't take them too seriously. But for this 2002 to 2021, 
S&P 500, 9.5% annual returns. Small cap stocks, 9.4%. High yield, 8.2%. 60-40, that's that 60% stock, 40% bond, 7.4%. Developed market equity, that's going to be your Europe, your, your Japan, 6.8%. 40-60 fund, 40%. Bonds, 60% stock, 6.4%. Bonds, 4.3%. Homes, don't we always talk about homes? Everyone wants to be in a home. 4.2%. The average investor did worse than even the home, 3.6%. And then inflation, 2.2%. So, oh, goodness me. When we look at something like this, we just got to say, well, what's the answer here? Why are people doing so poorly? In fact, this is also why I tell people, it's not a bad idea to pay off your home because you know what I know? Even though the home only did 4.2% a year from 2002 to 2021, that's better than the average investor. It's better. It's better than what the average investor did. And why is that? The average investor is rotating in out of credit categories. The average investor is getting sucked up in these covered call deals and thinking that's the way to uh, high, high income. The average investor is rotating in and out of categories and out of stocks and out of cash. The average investor is not looking at this as the data I just read to you about this initial 20% decline in the returns in a recession or non-recessionary environment. They're, whole, they're staying in cash. They're, the average investor is bad. Average is really bad. So you can you look at this. Just If you just put the money in the index from 2002 to 2021, 9.5% returns. And by the way, the average institutional investor, these are the supposed smart folks, bad. They're also bad. We can talk about that more later. But this should heighten your awareness and my awareness that we are not better than the average investor. We are human. We need to set up systems that take the guesswork out of it for us. Okay, that's why I like simple rules, simple investments that don't ask a lot of you and me, the investor. Because otherwise, we're going to be in the 3.6% average investor deal. And that's also why I tell folks, hey, look, if you just want to... If you just want to buy homes, at least you'll get 4.2%. It's going to beat inflation, hopefully. The 60-40 fund did great, 7.4%. But beware of rotating in and out of stuff. It doesn't work. And then, in closing, rise of zombie VCs. Tech investors as plunging valuations hammer the industry. This is a CNBC article by... It says Ollie Millington, but I think that might just be the person who gave us the picture. So we'll, we'll call it just by CNBC. But I thought this was really important because last year and the year prior was all about these VC, VC funds, go, go, go. Well, what's happening? Well, valuations are dropping and by a lot in these private companies that these venture capital funds invested in. Okay, let's give some examples. Well, let's look at <clears throat> how these things work. So these are private deals. So if the investor wants to become a limited partner in these things, they'll put up usually a significant amount of money and there's a time frame these these funds invest in. So they will invest their money in these private companies over long periods of time, one, two, three, four, five years periods, and then hopefully the fund life, seven, eight, nine years, and you sell, and they sell these companies when they go public, make a lot of money, and sometimes they have. What's happening now is we're seeing private valuations actually drop in line with public stocks. So I'll give an example. Stripe, which is an online payments giant, saw its internal market value drop 40% to $63 billion from reaching a peak of $95 billion in March of 2021. 
The article continues, the buy now, pay later lender Klarna last raised funds at a 6.7% valuation. That is uh, an 85% discount to its prior fundraise. Crypto funds, no surprise, FTX and others, they, ri- they, they raised money at a private backing of $32 billion. That's worth zero now. So if you're in these funds, your money is trapped in all these investments and it's going to be very difficult. They call them zombie because you're not going to get your money out. These funds are going to do everything they can to try to get their annual return data to look as pretty as possible. So they're going to wait, 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 wait. And they're not going to be able to raise new funds potentially or as many. And there'll be zombies and they'll just go to a skeleton crew. They'll just fire everybody who was working on new deals and just you have an administrative staff and a couple of folks who maybe are on investor relations and you just milk them down. And the investors, maybe they get, depending on the fund, what they invested in, they might get 20, 30, 40 cents back on the dollar they invested. Hopefully better, sometimes worse. And what does that teach us as an investor? Well, I want us to think about the long term here. No surprise. I want you to think about what's going to happen after this. So the late 90s is a a neat way to analogize this. In the late 90s, a lot of these venture capital funds were formed, invested in these private deals, and then boom, they just dropped like a rock. And a lot of these funds return very little to the original investors. Now, what happened to those funds? What happened to their marketing data about annual returns? What happened to their staff? What happened to, uh, yeah, their logo, their color scheme? It all went away. It all disappeared. And you know what came back? A new fund with zero you know, reporting data. There is a game that goes on, investor. The reason why when you look at a pitch deck, you never see awful returns is because they don't bring that to the light of day. What is going to happen with a lot of these funds is they will just disappear into the night. They will fizzle up. They will go away. And the team will either join a company, start a new v, uh, VC fund, uh, enter in with an existing ZF, VC fund that did better. And people always wonder, why don't people just invest in these VC funds? They seem to do so well. Look at the historic data that Sequoia puts out or Andreessen Horowitz puts out or Founders Fund puts out. Well, you're engaging in selection bias there. And oftentimes those funds have duds as well. You are, you are only looking at the winners. You're not looking at losers. Well, what, how do we find the data that shows the losers? Well, oftentimes it's hidden in endowment fund returns. These are funds that universities, sometimes it's hidden in pension fund returns. These are funds that a teacher retirement group will put together. These funds by law are required to tell there have been various beneficiaries, what their returns are, and they participate in this stuff all the time. So it's in that data set that you'll find what happens with these zeros and these 20% on the dollar and 30% on the dollar. And what it results in is these various institutional investors doing poorly. So when I read you that data about, hey, in the last 20 years, the average investor earned 3.6%, well, the average institutional investor typically does worse than their 60-40 stock index fund. Typically. You'll have some do do fine, others do worse. But it's a reminder to us that do not get caught up in the hype, in the hot topic of, of the day. And private tech companies were really hot the last couple of years, and now they're not. 
it's going to be tough to find the data showing all the failures. You're just going to have folks licking their wounds, going away, disappearing into the night. So don't do that. Stay within that circle of competence. Be willing to be boring. Being boring can be a superpower. Marvel should do that. Boring man earns, returns in vast excess of his peers. Boring man. I can see it now. I can't wait to buy that action hero. I bet he's... I bet he's, I bet he's earning... He's top 10%, guys. That's what's tough to remember. This boring man is top 10% investor, top 5% investor. So... As always, keep those costs low, keep that investing simple, keep that time horizon long. That's what's going to give you the best shot on your investing journey.